Hello, film snobs. This is Film Snobs, the podcast where we try to teach you to become better film snobs. I'm James Owen, joined here with um, co-host Steve Himes. Hey, Steve. Hi. So I want to start with this because, okay, so some of you who might be listening to this know me and Steve as Jimmy O and Shimes. And so for a number of years back in the early aughts, the salad days, as we like to call it, the best period of time in recent history, uh, we ran a website. We ran film snobs. We ran this website where we reviewed movies and reviewed TV shows or reviewed just basically whatever we were interested in. We came, we came kind of a, we came, came like a little cult sensation with other film critics, with other people. You know, Himes got to like hobnob with people that emailed him like Christopher Hitchens and Louis C.K. Oh, we don't want to mention the Louis C.K. <laughs> Anyway, so we we did this we did this website we did that for five years we kind of like moved on to like other things in our lives, uh, and then for whatever reason because we still talk about stuff we thought well now that we're in this newfangled world of podcasts, what the world needs is not uh, two white guys sitting around talking about movies like you see on every single film podcast and they're all bad, but like what we were hoping to do was take a movie or TV show or some other cultural event and find an expert out there to kind of provide context to it, to kind of get an idea about why this should matter, about maybe enhancing your ability to watch this, to, you know, kind of take it in to kind of understand it better. And so that's, that's the idea. Steve, did I miss anything? That sounds right, James. Okay. So so today, so like, I kind of, so like, here's what we're going to talk about today. And we have a guest who's patiently waiting. Uh, you know, about a month or so ago, Steve and I were talking about the fact that, uh, you know, we've got the situation in Ukraine. Maybe you've heard about it. You know, World War Three, Putin, you know, inviting a sovereign nation, saying it's his own, all that other stuff. Um, and, you know, this is, um, oh, gosh, and this is where my show prep is going to, my lack of show prep is going to fail me. Um, Volodymyr, is that how you say his first name? Uh, Volodymyr. V- Volodymyr. Zelensky. We'll say President Zelensky. <laughs> yeah, Zelensky's good. Uh, yeah, and uh, so President Z- Zelensky, who has really proven to be like an extraordinary wartime leader for that country in uh, Ukraine. But one thing Steve pointed out to me is, you know, I, I knew he was a comedian. I think a lot of people knew he had a background as an entertainer. But what I didn't know is that the first season of a sitcom he did called Servant of the People, that was for Ukrainian television, is available on Netflix. And what we just learned as we record this, which, by the way, I hate to timestamp these things, but we're recording this on May 12th of 2022, starting on Monday, the 16th, the second season of Servant of the People will be premiering on Netflix or, or I guess, returning to Netflix. So it's fascinating to us that this guy is now like considered this global leader. And there's this whole sitcom about him being this average guy who gets elected as president because i think like the, the premise is that he has some rant this kind of rant about how like oh everybody who runs for office is bad one of his students he's a history teacher one of his students captures it on video and it becomes it's his internet sensation and he wins this election surprisingly um so and he he said often in his campaign like go watch my tv show that tells you what you need to know about so in kind of trying to understand Zelensky, trying to understand this conflict, we sought out uh, Dr. Andrew Barron. Hello. Uh, hey, thanks for sitting through all of that. 
<laughs> no, I, I mean, I know how podcasts are, so don't worry about it. Yeah. I mean, at least we're not sitting here like talking about like our personal habits before we start <laughs> y- yucking it up. I mean, we're going to. What time to- you woke up, you know, what you ate yeah. for breakfast. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. Not at the bodega or whatever. Yeah. The first 10 minutes of any podcast, I just honestly end up wanting to slip my wrist. But um, so Dr. Barrent, he is a, he teaches at uh, the Missouri uh, S&T, which is in Rolla, Missouri, kind of a world renowned uh, school for engineering, but they also have, they also teach, uh, you know, general studies there. And he is in um, your political science and history there, doctor. Yeah, I'm history. Yeah. The, the, the departments are combined. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, but you, uh, you have your PhD from the university of Pittsburgh, your MA from the university of Chicago, your BA from Grinnell college. Um, you had been the, um, you had been the academic advisor at the center for Russian and East European studies at the university of Pittsburgh and the program coordinator, newsnet editor for the Association of for Slavic, East European and Eurasian Studies, or the ASEES. Hey, yeah, yeah. what's my old job? No, <laughs> just kidding. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of different jobs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, so you are, I mean, so like when I, I saw that you were, you had done some presentations trying to talk about this mm-hmm. conflict to students on campus. And I thought, hey, we should just call this guy and bug him and see if he'll be on our podcast. So here you are. Welcome. I'm happy to be here. And uh, thank you for having me on. Yeah. So doctor. um, So yeah, you kind of listened to us talk a little about Zelensky. I think, you know, I'm I'm kind of curious, you know, you know, kind of think a little bit about, you know, the world that we know it as with Ukraine. I mean, what, what is something that you think people here I'll say in the West, but let's just say people like in the Midwest uh-huh. <laughs> in, in this country, what do you think it is they don't understand about Ukraine that would be helpful for them to understand in, in thinking about this conflict and thinking about the culture there? Well, I think one thing, um, one thing that I would say is in, in a certain strange way, uh, Ukraine in the last couple of years is maybe as as stable as Ukraine had been, um, possibly ever, uh, possibly with, except for some periods in the 1990s. But I mean, the history of Ukraine is, uh, I, I was thinking about this and going back as far as the, you know, the 16th century, the 17th century, um, and the territory that we call Ukraine. And it has, I mean, everywhere in Europe, especially in Central and Eastern Europe, you know, thinks of itself as the center of Europe or the crossroads uh, between Asia and Europe. And, and there's a, you know, everyone's got their case for this. But Ukraine, thinking about it way back when, it, it really has for a long time been this, uh, just a big broad space in which various empires jockeyed for position. And the, and the people living in that territory who have had many different identities and languages and, and, and pasts over the years um, have had to be the 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 big wide open field which everyone crosses to get to you know from one from one war to the next and um and flash forward to the 20th century and the attempts at creating a ukrainian national state after world war one uh subsumed into the ussr in the 1920s and then uh, uh suffering at the hands of the of the soviet state in the 1930s um becoming a, a major partner within the Soviet Union for the in the after the 50s into the collapse of the Soviet Union and then at last from a Ukrainian nationalist perspective having its own independent state after 1991 and that too uh, being a period of great instability poverty and 
It's not really until after 2004, after 2010. I mean, there's all these moments of instability where it seems that the guy starring in this show, Vladimir Zelensky, <laughs> is going to be the one to bring some kind of semblance of stability. And then the war. I mean, actually, the continuation of a war that began in 2014. Why? So uh, I guess on, on, on one hand, there, there's this sort of bitter irony that Zelensky's presidency was supposed to be the, the kind of finally this breath of fresh air that would bring about a, a lasting stability um, after uh, and we can get into it if you want a decade of the 2010s where there's a great deal of instability mm -hmm. and uh, and then here's this war again so it, it, yeah. it, 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 it lost it, I mean lost opportunity a tragedy um, there's no other no other way to think about it um, can you, so, um, that's why, uh, I, you know, I'm really excited to have the, you know, to Andrew, to have you on today, to be able to talk a little bit about the history of this mm -hmm. territory, because to me, it feels like this is, you know, Zelensky's project is like the culmination of the, uh, uh culmination of the, uh, attempt to forge a Ukrainian, a unique Ukrainian identity amongst the people who live in this territory who, like, as you pointed out, you know, for like literally centuries have been the crossroads between empires. It was the Mongol hordes. It was, you know, the Romanovs. <laughs> it was, you know, uh, you know, one understanding of the reason why Hitler went east rather than west first was because the fertile lands of Ukraine was what was going to feed the, German, you know, feed the, the Third Reich, like all mm -hmm, of that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, all of that. So I think may, maybe one way to frame this for the viewers is to talk about, um, is maybe just to talk about the importance of the land itself and how that, this piece of territory, like this piece of land in the middle of these empires has made it so sought after by empires and like how the, and if, and how the Ukrainian flag, the blue and the yellow that we see in everybody's yards now, <laughs> is a is a symbol of that. Well, you know, as to the land, I mean, Ukraine is such. I mean, the, the contemporary Ukraine is really a huge expanse of territory. Um, uh, I, I I was looking at a, a map yesterday, and I think it basically stretches from essentially um, uh, what would be from Paris to. Prague or, or maybe it was to Warsaw, something like that, essentially. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it encompasses it would be much of the territory of Western Europe and, and Western Central Europe. And so it has, you know, very geography. The West is more forested, more mountainous. You've got the Carpathians there in the West. But in in the um, in the central and the eastern part of Ukraine, it's rivers and it's steppe, essentially. And 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 it's, it's rivers what? and what was I'm the steppe? Steppe. Yeah like Stepland, S-T-E-P-P-E. -P -P -E. Okay. And the, the kind of the, 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 the highway before highways in, in Eurasia, that is, you know, the whole landmass that, that goes, you know, from the Atlantic all the way to the Pacific and include Africa and the Middle East in there too. This whole um, vast territory for most of history, really up until the modern era, is, is driven by the traffic that goes east and west and north and south across the Eurasian steppe. Mm -hmm. And Ukraine is the uh, kind of largest and westernmost part of the vast Eurasian steppe, which 
in combined with the, the whole river system that, that connected it with the, the Baltic Sea and, the, and, the, and the, the sea world beyond it has made it this almost inevitably through geographical you know, just positioning has made it this area where um, for, for millennia, really, people end up because it's e relatively easy to get there because of the steppe and because of the rivers. And so um, this territory, I mean, it, it's, it's almost like a, a it, you could, sometimes you could think about the steppe land as a terrestrial sea. Uh, that's how the Mongols thought of it, essentially, as, as sea, uh, which if you know how to master, uh, you know, travel by horse and by, uh, yeah, especially by horse, that you can navigate it very quickly. And so Ukraine has, throughout the centuries, been where steppe nomads will deposit themselves after moving westward from central Eurasia. It's where the, you know, the Vikings came down. That's how you have the original Kievan Rus state uh, is because of the travel by river. And it's also very fertile farmland. And that, and that gets to your question about why it's a, a prize, especially in the modern era, uh, in the era of modern empires, is because this is rich black soil. And it's one of the reasons why we might be facing some kind of global grain crisis as a result mm -hmm. of the fact that you can't be planting when there's a war on and, and the tractors and the, and the, the grad missile systems and the, everything else are digging up the soil. Um, and so it, it really is this, I mean, it's a, it's, it, it's a, it's a, like a fascinating and, and, and unique confluence literally of rivers and of steppe and of farmland and that has made it, unfortunately for the people who live there in many ways, yeah. a, a place to be run over and conquered. Yeah. And is yeah. It, am I correct in uh, saying that the Ukrainian flag with the blue stripe on top and the yellow underneath is in part in, inspired by the blue sky above mm -hmm. and the sunflowers and the wheat that grow yeah, on yeah, the fertile right. land? Yeah. And that mm -hmm. was and incidentally, that was the main image in the uh, in Liv Scribner's film uh, about uh, uh, everything is illuminated right. about a Jewish oh, man yeah. going to right. seek his uh, right his uh, Jewish family identity, which by the way, Zelensky is Jewish. And we can get into that a little right. bit later in the history and history of that as well. But that was, that was actually the, uh, the, the blue sky and those yellow sunflowers was the uh, cover art for that's that right. movie as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. There's some striking scenes in that movie. I remember of, of that, of those images. Yeah. That came out in 2006. We'll check mm -hmm. to see if that's streaming anywhere. Yeah. I, you know, you mentioned the Vikings. This is kind of an aside to what we're talking about, but there's a movie that came out a couple of weeks ago. Robert Edgards did The Northman. I don't know if you've seen it. Not yet, unfortunately. I'd like to. Well, it's great. And the whole second ha act of that movie is set in what is now modern day Ukraine. Oh, is that right? Well, because that's where they they happen to be raping and pillaging. <laughs> uh <-huh>. Yes. <laughs> uh, at that time. Yeah. So. Right. <laughs> but that's an extraordinary film that I, I, you know, I understand has a lot of like, you know, there was a lot of great detail taken into the you know, into the language. Uh, I think Robert Eggers co-wrote that with a kind of a Viking kind of steeped um, poet. So the language was more accurate. And so like some of the historical details are also very, um, very, uh, you know, very realistic to the time, which is just interesting. You mentioned that because it made me think of that movie. Um, well, yeah. and it also too, like to me, like when, especially during the first like week or two of the war, when we saw the tanks, that were rolling in from the east and it was in this so like if you understand a little bit of the context of ukraine as the breadbasket of you know the eurasian steppe 
seeing these Ukrainian farmers disabling Russian tanks <laughs> on the step, like it like is like kind of the most Ukrainian thing that I could put in my mind, right? Which is that, you know, the Russian conscripts had no idea how to, you know, the Russian army, you know, like they literally did had rotten tires on their tanks because yeah. they never ta- changed the tanks. And then the Ukrainian farmers were coming in off of the step to tow the tanks, you know, yeah. off, of the, off of the highways. Yeah, that, that was a fascinating phenomenon, I think, early in the war. And I haven't seen so much of it lately. I mean, you'll occasionally see some videos posted on one of many open source intelligence accounts that, on Twitter. Um uh, and and of, of tanks, you know, dragging. I'm uh, sorry, of tractors dragging off tanks or missile systems or whatever else has been abandoned or you know is still salvageable. And and I think that I mean, as time goes on, I think there'll be a lot to analyze with this, both as a phenomenon in itself, as a as a, a reflection of the many failings of the of the Russian war plan, which has been just uh, I mean kind of mind boggling in its in 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 its apparent incompetence, uh, but but also as a phenomenon in, in Western media. And, and I think it's really fascinating because on one hand, it, it's, for me anyway, was one of the very few things that was kind of amusing uh, about the war. I mean, such as anything was. Um, but there's something I think, if you want to you know, look at the subtext, it's, it's a very, to me, kind of so, uh, swords into plowshares sort of uh, um, fantasy, right? Of you, You've got uh, the underdogs in this war who are, you know, it's easy uh, to kind of frame them as as these uh, historically put upon farmers uh, who are yet again being invaded by some, you know, some uh, malevolent force and um, uh, are, are in a sense defeating them in this specific way uh, by dragging off these spoils of war, um, you know, uh, that the invaders themselves didn't seem to have the capacity to use in any uh, you know, a powerful sense. And I mean, it was, I think it was a kind of light in the darkness in those first few weeks where it really felt like Kiev was going to fall, right? That was mm-hmm. the assumption is that really, I remember just being on Twitter and, and refreshing my timeline constantly, constantly trying to see what was going on. And like, am I going to wake up tomorrow and, and Kiev is going to be in, in Russian hands and there's going to be a, you know, a new government, a puppet government or whatever. And, and there's something about the tractors that seemed to, to suggest in this information poor environment, really, that it could go the other way, or maybe it wasn't going to be quite as desperate as that. And as the war has now kind of become a little bit frozen, I think, in the East, um, that seems to have dissipated. So anyway, yeah, I, think, yeah. I think future scholars are going to have a, a field day, pun intended. Yeah. Uh, we'll track so, <laughs> so this is where I think it'd be interesting to take the conversation more to like Ukrainian identity, which uh-huh. I think maybe for, uh, for our audience, uh, might, start around the, uh, might start around the Russian Revolution, because you're absolutely right. Like looking at Servant of the People now, and like, like the op- I didn't come to it until after the invasion began. And then the Me opening neither. credits where mm-hmm. Zelensky is on that bicycle riding by the Independence <laughs> Monument mm-hmm. in Kiev, like that was heartbreaking, <laughs> you yeah. know, to, to watch, right? And so then to and then in the early parts of the war, like you heard, you know, the, the armchair armchair Twitter historians talking about like Putin trying to reconstitute <laughs> the Soviet Republic. And I was like, no, 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 that's actually, you know, like if you listen to Putin's war speeches, like, you know, him talking about how Lenin's biggest mistake was mm-hmm. granting 
you know, the break, you know, the quote breakaway republics, personhood and peoplehood. And so I think, and, and I think it's important to like kind of understand that whole like difference between the empire and the Soviet Union as a way of framing up exactly why Putin wants to destroy Zelensky so bad, who seems like kind of a semi-minor figure on the world stage, but also like, don't forget, like he's the reason Trump got impeached. First, you know, the first time. You know, like let's let's, emphasize, a, let's let's clear that up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think maybe maybe going back to like the early 1900s, the fall of the Romanovs, the forging of the Russian Revolution, and how that affected the satellite nations and their own quest for identity in the shadow of Russia will be helpful in understanding what Zelensky means to Putin. Yeah, Thomas, we'll get closer to the show after we go through that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) No, I mean, one of the one of the, uh, uh, I guess, in a certain sense, intellectual pleasures, but also one of the great intellectual challenges of studying uh, Eastern and Central Europe is just how damn complicated everything is. And and and, you know, taking a different one, one perspective changes. It's like a, you know, it's a kind of kaleidoscope. And so I'll do my best to to make sense of it. so yeah, if we want to start with the uh, with the Russian Revolution and and the collapse of the uh, Romanov dynasty in you know 1917, um, essentially you know what this ends up sparking is what I tell my students is World War 1.5, which is you know mm-hmm. we often called the Russian Civil War, but really it, it's a vast Eurasian uh, civil war across many different fronts across uh, you know from from uh, Eastern and Central Europe all the way to the Pacific, basically, there are these different fronts and these, these different um, military campaigns fought by the Bolsheviks and their allies, who sometimes aren't their allies, by the counter-revolutionary forces, the whites, uh, trying to essentially restore the, uh, the, the, the Russian Empire. And you have, in places like Ukraine, various peasant uprisings and anarchist you know, non-states and uh, collectives and the, the blacks and the greens, like uh, Nestor Makhno, one of the, one of the great Ukrainian uh, revolutionaries who is also a kind of anarchist warlord. Um, it's, it's a gigantic mess and it's hard to keep straight. And in one of the storylines of, of World War I and a half, if you like, is an attempt to create a Ukrainian national state, um, which is something that many different national movements in Eastern and Central Europe are trying to do at this very moment. It's what it's what tears apart the Habsburg monarchy, which is my particular specialty, um, the Czech and Slovak national movement, uh, a Hungarian national movement, a, 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 an expanded Romanian national movement, etc. A pol- a revived Polish national movement, which is very central to the question of Ukraine and of, of the Soviet Union. And so you have this brief period of maybe 18 months or so where there is a uh, a, a nascent Ukrainian national state uh, being carved out of territory, um, uh, you know, part of what is today uh, Ukraine um, that is buffeted on all sides by having to fight with the uh, revived Polish Republic against uh, uh, Hungarian revanchists and uh, Czechoslovaks who are trying to, you know, get that territory for themselves against the Bolsheviks. Um, and it's, you know, and plus you have Ukrainian peasants who don't necessarily think of themselves yet as Ukrainians in the way that the Ukrainian nationalists might want them to, uh, to be on board with a Ukrainian nation state. And, you know, as it as it pans out, they're not able to hold on. 
And ultimately, in the territorial arrangement that that shakes out, you have the foundations of what will become the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic as one of the major uh, units of the Soviet yeah. Union. So, yeah, it's my if I remember correctly, Makhno was the uh, anarchist yes, uh, Ukrainian right. leader, like basically the leader of the blacks. Yeah. Right. And the bargain that he basically had to choose was, well, are we going to go with the whites? who were the, uh, you know, the uh, conservative, um, conservative reactionaries that the probably yeah. bringing back some form of the Tsardom and the Romanovs or the Reds, the new Bolsheviks. They did not like the Reds at all, but saw them as the lesser of two evils. And that led to the forging of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. Is yeah. that, did, did I get that pretty much? Yeah, that, that, yeah I think that's, that's, that's pretty good. I mean, you know, it, it, because it's so complicated, you know, you have like various stories in, in this theater of the war of, yeah, these these peasant uh, groups like the like the blacks and the greens um, who are wary of the Bolsheviks, who sometimes offer their support kind of on the battlefield. Uh, they have a you know, they they, they operate together uh, and then the Bolsheviks will come and requisition grain from the peasants at, at bayonet point. Um, so they can feed the cities, which, you know, that's really their, their, their base. And why would the peasants have any love for them after that? But then here come the whites to liberate them, quote unquote, from, you know, Bolshevik tyranny. And what do they want to do? They want to uh, bring back the aristocratic landlords and, and basically tell the peasants, you're, you know, you're serfs or quasi serfs again. So is it, is it helpful ahead. to think of Putin as a kind of like neo-whitist? I, I mean, <laughs> I, I think to a certain extent, yeah. I mean, I think yeah. I think his guiding star is, is not the Soviet Union as it is the Russian Empire and, and, the, right. and the great the grander Russian imperial tradition. Now, I mean, to call him the Tsar again, I know that has I, I don't necessarily want to get into that. I'm not yeah. I'm not as deeply uh, involved in kind of Russian uh, uh, affairs as that. But I mean, that is you like you said his speeches before the war and as the war began. Um, decrying Lenin and the Bolsheviks and their policy of granting some kind of cultural autonomy to these, uh, you know, constituent groups of the Russian Empire as one of the great mistakes, yeah. rather than seeing the Ukrainians as kind of misbegotten yeah. wayward Russians who just need yeah. to be reminded of yeah. their true belonging, along with the Belarusians, yeah. who are, yeah. you know, have been accomplices in the world. Yeah, so if we can push up then use that as a touch point to push up to 1932 and 33 because as we talk about, you know, if we understand the Ukrainian territory as the breadbasket of Europe, mm -hmm, the blue mm -hmm. and the yellow and the Bolshevik like part of the whole communist project was the redistribution of resources. And so that I think leads us up to uh Holodomor. Then, yeah, the whole of the more, yeah. Yeah, and Stalin and the the great famine of 1932 to 1933, because I do, you know, I do think that that plays another key role in like forming. Oh, mm -hmm. Yeah, so yeah, so I think that would be great to talk about as well. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't really get any easier to talk about than anything else. And, and yeah. in some ways much harder because it's an incredibly sensitive subject. Um, uh, with not only, you know, as, within kind of, we might call popular historical memory and, and, and I, uh, historical identity, but even as a, as a scholarly subject, it, it's one of the, the kinds of things that will um, uh, make conferences uh, uh, nervous places to be. Totally. Uh, and, and so, uh, so the, what I'll say about this is that um, 
1920 and 1929, as Stalin essentially becomes the Stalin that we know and, and, and as, the, as the boss of the Soviet Union, um, his great init- set of initiatives that he uh, under, undertakes, the, sometimes called the Great Turn, is this uh, a bifurcated plan that is really uh, all part of one larger plan to modernize the Soviet Union and to turn it into um, a secure, powerful state that can be that can withstand what the, what the then the Communist Party of the Soviet Union assumes will happen is some kind of grand counterattack by the West to destroy it. Um, and the only way that they feel that they can manage some kind of security is to turn it into a modern state. So in order to do that, they have to industrialize. But in order to industrialize, you have to support the industrial base and you need food for that. The thing is, from their perspective, is that the uh, you know Russian imperial peasant tradition of farming in many places is uh, a lot of the peasants don't even have metal tools, right? They're they're using wooden plows, sticks, you know, kind of with maybe with animals, maybe not. And the and the civil war uh, uh, ravages much of uh, of what will become the Western Soviet Union, and so from the communist perspective. Um, you can't have industrialization without also modernizing and industrializing the agricultural system. But there's more to it than just about making it efficient. It's also about breaking the cultural and social power of the peasantry um, who represent for the communists um, uh, perhaps one of the, you know, the greatest pillars of reaction. Uh, they're, they're close to the church. They're, um, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're very invested in maintaining their own private property, their, their, their familial lands and having autonomy over the soil, as opposed to the Soviet um, project, which is to collectivize farming. And so the Great Famine is a result of state policies stemming from collectivization and, and of forcing farmers, not only in Ukraine, but especially in Ukraine, off of their own private land onto Kind of state corporations, these collective farms, or into directly state-owned farms, and for them to be producing um, theoretically in a more uh, a modern manner, but also to have their uh, produce redistributed according to the centrally planned economy. This does not go over well, right, uh, for the Ukrainian farmers or, or any or, or or the peasants of Central Asia either. There's a whole other side of the famine that happens in Kazakhstan, which is um, per capita, even worse than the Holodomor, uh, but it's, you know, it's a kind of side story. We'll leave that aside. Um, and, um, and so the, the challenge for the Soviet state is to make these peasants do something that they fundamentally don't want to do for all kinds of reasons. And um, uh, the, the resistance of the peasants to not surrendering their produce, you know, to murdering their, you know, murdering, to killing their livestock rather than surrendering it to the central state, um, uh, uh, provokes further state repression. You have the war on the so-called kulaks, the, the richer peasants, which also becomes a broader way of, 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 of describing you know, peasant holdouts against the, the collectivization. I, yeah, I believe that the French called them the petit bourgeoisie. Yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, of the countryside, right? These are yeah. the richer peasants who, yeah. who have more to lose, right? And, and right. who have uh, 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 you know, just and yeah, Stalin, no di- Stalin—that's dekulakization, right? Yeah, that's yes, yeah. that's that's part of this. I mean, yeah. um, it's one of the it's one of the strains of this moment. So, in any case, 
how this turns into what comes to be called the Holodomor is that there is a particular virulence that the Soviet state uh, exercises against the Ukrainian peasantry. Um, and this is what this is where the, the, the debate happens is, is this a, a, a genocide directed against the Ukrainian people and against Ukrainian nationhood? Or is this like one facet of Soviet policy that is especially directed at the Ukrainian nationalists because they're seen as the most recalcitrant and, and really the, you know, the biggest stumbling block to collectivization. I'm going to set aside that debate for now, if that's okay, but that those are the, essentially the lines. And that's hugely controversial. Like yeah, when you were talking yes, earlier, yes, yes, like that's I the mean, flashpoint issue. Yes, that's right. Um, and, uh, uh, but, uh, what is for certain that happens is you have, uh, a gigantic famine um, throughout the Soviet Union, but especially in the Western part in the Ukrainian SSR that kills some three, four million people uh, as a result of state policy, as as uh, uh, food is requisitioned from the peasantry, as essentially they are being punished for their uh, resistance um, and allowed to starve. Um, you have you know these accounts of of people staggering to death because they haven't eaten for who knows how long just just dropping over in the streets of these mm -hmm. villages and in the cities in the in the fields um and this is acceptable for the soviet state because well they're they're in the way right and 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 is it where and is it fair to say that this is like the grandparents and the great grandparents of the people who are you know who are mostly on in those ter you know on that land now that's that's probably true i mean for for many of them i mean you have a, a large uh wave of of russian migrate like ethnic russian migration right. that happens to ukraine especially after the second world war um and, and particularly into the industrial cities uh and, and so uh, some of those folks their grandparents might have been somewhere else in the soviet right. union but you know especially in the western and central parts of ukraine um, the more ethnically Ukrainian parts, yeah, that's right. very likely. Yeah. See, because that that was one of the one of the things that you hear uh, that we hear a lot in the in the context of the war now is like we were surprised by the virulence of the Ukrainian resistance. And I think if you're steeped in this history, you're like, why were you surprised? <laughs> yeah, you know, like this this is just kind of historically what has happened within the immediate memory of a lot of people who are still there. Like, I, th I think in context, it really isn't that surprising. No, it, it isn't, except, I mean, in, in the, it is surprising, in, it perhaps in one sense, is that um, in the eastern parts of Ukraine, in the southern parts, and even the city where uh, Zelensky is from, uh, right. Kriviri, um, uh, uh, is, uh, you have a, a large proportion, even a majority in many cases, who are uh, Russian speakers and ethnically Russian. Now, that doesn't equate necessarily to an identity, you know, identification with the Russian Federation, but, you know, uh, a cultural affinity, at least, and a linguistic one. And part, I think, of Putin's gamble was that these parts of Ukraine were going to, you know, going to abandon the Ukrainian state um, once the, you know, so-called liberators showed up. And yeah. that isn't what happened. If, if anything, his invasion has solidified Ukrainian identity in a way that it has never, ever been solidified. Right. And that's where we can get we can like fast forward up to 
uh, you know, up to the the uh, maybe the dissolution of the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. and that gets us to Zelensky. So, James, you want to? Yeah, because I mean, I, I kind of you know, I think I was reading something last night in the Atlantic magazine about Zelensky becoming elected, kind of his shift from an entertainer because he was like. I think I was reading he was like probably the most prolific producer of of comedy in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he uses that comedy as a lot of great comedians do to challenge kind of social injustices. In this case, he kind of challenges. I mean, his big thing was anti-corruption, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which, you know, it kind of seems like was his big appeal. And, I, and I, you know, I kind of you, you talk a lot about the aristocrats from that earlier period, which I was going to ask earlier, I, you know, and this is probably a good, kind of a, a dumb question, but uh, you know, would that be similar to how we view oligarchs now? Are they kind of that same vein? Cause that seems to be something that when you hear about corruption and you talk mm-hmm. about that part of the world, oligarchs are a pretty predominant part of what we're, of, of what we talk about. Are they the same kind of people? I, I, I wouldn't say so. I, I mean, I, the, the old aristocracy is uh, they're from really of an earlier a whole earlier arrangement of, of social relations and economic relations. And and they are the the landlords that go back to, you know, the 17th century and, and who have this who had a, a feudal. We, we might call it relationship over their their tenants. Mm-hmm. The oligarchs are. I mean, they're billionaires and, and, and in the post-Soviet context, they're billionaires that become that way because of the rapid and uh, haphazard privatization of, of, of the Soviet state. Yeah, which is, I mean, was that, was that something that happened when you saw the fall of the Soviet Union in the yes. late 80s and then yeah. you start seeing like these breakout countries? I mean, that's kind of where they became more prominent. Yes. Yeah, I mean, the, the, what we, who we call oligarchs um, are, are products of this, uh, this, chaos really that 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 uh, that marks the the collapse of the soviet union um which is overseen in many ways by western economists who have this you know position that in order to break their addiction from communism we have to as it was called give them shock therapy right cold turkey privatize the state (laughs) enterprises uh you know cut down on state expenditure and this will break them break their habit uh of depending upon the state but one of the things that across the post-Soviet space is that um, that you have guys who are politically connected, who, who are able to benefit from their position within the, you know, what, you know, the former Communist Party or from their connections with this or to the underworld and the black market is, is they're able to, to benefit from this and, and um, kind of suck up capital uh, so that they can buy up these old state enterprises, especially in, in things like the energy sector or telecommunications mm. or manufacturing, um, uh, or, or in the case of you know, Petro Poroshenko, the, gov- the, the president who precedes Zelensky, uh, is a chocolate magnate. Um, you know, they have these kind of commanding positions over these industries that had been a part of the state and now are being privatized at you know, completely breakneck speed. And and what yeah. sca- and from my understanding, like what scares the oligarchs is that, you know, at some point, if the Russian state falls, there goes the money. And so part of the major <laughs> project of the oligarchs has been laundering that money out of the former Soviet Union into play into say chelsea football club mm-hmm. you know like that uh, and you telling me that soccer is corrupt steve yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know and you know that 
I mean, we don't have to go into Boris Johnson with, you know, and, you know, the, the relationship between the Tories and the Russians. But I will say, like, one of the most moving things, I, uh, I used to take, uh, uh, do a study abroad trip to London and Paris on Taylor Two Cities, and I took a class to uh, Highgate Cemetery where mm-hmm. um, Dickens's parents are buried. And the first place that they take you on uh, the private tour of the west side of the cemetery, which is across from... Uh, the east side where Marx is, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is they take you to the grave of Alexander uh, Litvinenko, who was one of the first uh, Russian dissidents who was poisoned by Putin mm-hmm. in oh, wow. London and Highgate Cemetery. And they, they, I know that's changed a little bit over the last like year or so, but the people at Highgate Cemetery said that the family asked that, that, um, that groups that came over here come to uh, you know, come to the, the grave sites in order to like kind of understand uh, what the Russian state now is about. And I tell you what, like when I was last there three years ago, I kind of understood it, but it makes a lot more <laughs> sense now. And so like with the, and so like understanding, you know, that the oligarchs are basically the private, the privatized arm of the former Soviet state, I think that takes us right up to Zelensky's conception, like his theory of Ukraine as it is now. And the way that that plays out in the pilot of the TV show actually kind of stakes his vision of what a Zelensky president should look like and what his mission as president would be. So can you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that? Uh, about um the, the 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 world in which the the show servant of the people emerges essentially yeah 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 because the open yeah because when the opening scenes is like you never see the faces of the oligarchs right you only see right. the pool tables and the whiskey glasses and it's the shadowy much, voices it reminded me of the man in um undercover brother a little bit <laughs> always like yeah. I hate, to, I hate to keep going, coming back to trashy movies from America, but it is very like, yeah, they want yeah. to be intentionally evasive with their with their visuals. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it is, that is one of the striking features of the show in the first season early on. I mean, we do see later on in the in the I mean, spoiler alert, I, I guess, yeah. for your viewers, like you, you see some of the oligarchs faces and, and full bodies uh, later in the season as, as that becomes more relevant. But they begin as these. Uh, shadowy kind of figures who are deliberately uh, you see their hands and they're always fidgeting with food or strikingly to me like they're always cutting fruit and vegetables and they're kind of living this sumptuous uh, you know uh, decadent sort of lifestyle as they plot to control uh, uh, Golubarenko right the the this hapless guy who becomes president Um, and and so what Servant of the People as a TV show comes out of is uh, this, you know, early 2000s, mid 2000s, after the uh, first Maidan revolution in 2004, um, uh, I think a kind of attempt to culturally reckon with the uh, the dominance of the of the so-called oligarchs in Ukrainian politics. and imagining a way of trying to break the Gordian knot of these guys are are there to bankroll politicians and and political parties and how do you, how can you imagine a political system that not only stands up to them but doesn't require them 
uh, and can tell them, you know, to go to hell because they aren't the source of power. Uh, you have this you know, a, a more a truly more truly democratic basis of power. Yeah. And one of the Joe. Oh, sorry, James. Oh, no, I was, jokes, well, no. oh sorry. Uh, oh, I was going to say one of the jokes of the of the uh, of the pilot is that the reason why none of the uh, oligarchs stopped the, the, the Zelensky character is that they just assume that he's a puppet of one of the other guys. Right. <laughs> so yeah, like, yeah. Election, <laughs> like, you, he was your guy, right? Like, no, no, no. I thought he was your guy. Well, wait a minute, but, but maybe he was the other guy. Like that was part of the joke is nobody stopped him because it was just an underlying assumption that the president of Ukraine is going to be a corrupted puppet of one right. of the oligarchs. Like, right. why wouldn't it be? Right. And 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 one of the, the through lines of the first season is they're getting more and more nervous as uh, as the president, you know, tries to unroll these various anti-corruption uh, laws and, and, and projects and uh, uh, try to find various ways of reining him in, either by bribing him or by, uh, well, you know, other means, we'll just say, because I don't want to spoil well, <laughs> the kind of yeah. denouement of things. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think for me, one of the best ways to imagine serving to the people is if we once we step past the fact that it is it is really surreal to watch it. Right. And, and to yes. see this guy who has become a global media figure um, in a, in a really incredible way um, to see him in his role as TV president before he becomes actual president and then tries to essentially play himself in his office <laughs> as actual president <laughs> to go back and try to, to try to think of this in its original context, rather than reading it back through the, the, the future, uh, right. which is, which is tough to do, but uh, it is to me, this, kind of a half whimsical, half serious, satirical fantasy of imagining a, a, a different political system that also deals with the kind of foibles of the Ukrainian people and, and, and mm. um, uh, trying to, you know, because his family members are, they're not always on board with the program either of, of, of you know, they, they see if, their son is president, their brother's president. Well, why shouldn't I get a taste of the pie? Right? Yeah. It's um, kind of like, it's got that like real sitcom, like women love to shop. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> women be shopping. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, certainly then, in the then, earlier parts. Yeah. I like that. The, there's the one episode, the fourth episode where, um, you know, they have this like kind of dumpy apartment, but then they bring in like all these like gold flecked yeah. paintings that they right. dump in. And a, and a Roomba. <laughs> Yeah, right yeah, absolute nouveau riche right all the, the totally gilded, yeah and 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 um and and i think they start like he has this like deal uh, for a while the the father does to uh to have it basically be a museum right that he sells uh tours to so they can see you know, where the where the glorious president had, had grown up yeah it's 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 an apartment in this old khrushchev era apartment block which is very common throughout the the former Soviet Union as as the solution at the time anyway to the essentially the housing crisis after the war, but also mm -hmm. as a way of completing uh, the urbanization of the Soviet Union. And so, I mean, this is like that is an image of like an everyday urban family. So be in one of these uh, uh, Khrushchev apartments, and so you know they live in these modest circumstances. And there's this there's, there's the absurdity I think of having all of this really gaudy um, stuff brought in into an apartment that, you know, basically doesn't have room for it. Um, <laughs> and anyway, so, so yeah, I mean, 
so at that i mean that's part of the fantasy too right is 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 uh trying to imagine how everyday people would deal with uh this kind of unheard of uh break from the everyday corruption of uh, you know the post-soviet era yeah one thing that i was thinking about and like trying to like kind of analogize because there's not anything that you can really analogize to it but i thought like the surrealist absurdity of like watching stephen colbert play you know bill o'reilly you know on the colbert report but also like there's this element of like i was trying to imagine if you know like Zelensky's whole thing is anti-corruption right and i was trying to imagine like if a figure as large as like roberto benini in italy after life is beautiful in 1997 decided look I'm going to create a sitcom that imagines me as Italian prime minister, and I'm going to use this as a platform to defeat Berlusconi in the prime minister elections of 2001. Like that's basically what Zelensky kind of imagined here. Or it's and kind I, of like uh, Robin Williams with Man of the Year, that Barry Levinson movie from 06, right. where he kind of played uh, very well, John Stewart type. That, well, yeah. well, my, my, I was talking to my wife about this, and, and I think she's right, is, is that she said, well, this would be basically if Martin Sheen <laughs> ran as president bartlett right and and, and, that, right. and that's what you got was yeah. this kind yeah. of you know yeah. idealized figure <laughs> of of what a good honest politician would look like who always has these principles first you know wrestles with them and so forth and 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 yeah i mean it would be of course we we did get a tv star as president but not not the martin not, version um yeah. uh <laughs> yeah yeah and so, yeah, there's, there's this kind of hyper normalized, like, you know, but simulacrum of, I don't know, it's very bizarre. I love this. So I love this analogy to the, to the West Wing. Cause this, well, that's my wife. To, she, has, she gets, well, okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> Cause I thought about this too, which was that, you know, so I love your comment about like trying to think about like what he was doing in real time mm-hmm. rather than like looking at it in retrospective. And to me, like that points up, I think some of the real, limitations mm-hmm. of Zelensky's worldview because this is one of the things that like when you listen to uh you know de- what DC like inside baseball democrat they're like everybody who works in a democratic presidential administration thinks that they're on the west wing yeah. <laughs> you know and they walk and they do that yeah. right and it's an extremely limiting you know, worldview because they, it's almost like you're play acting out this idealized vision of the presidency rather than engaging with the real politique and the compromises mm-hmm. that go along with that. And as I understand it, Zelensky was not, his popularity was like in the twenties and thirties before the invasion. That's right. So wh- why don't we say a little bit about, yeah. or I guess I'll say a little bit yeah, about yeah, yeah. kind of Please. Zelensky's political career, because yeah. I mean, it really, it, it's such a, I mean, there's something about the era in which we live, you know, when, when TV stars can become presidents and, and, but also in the case of Trump and Zelensky overlap in these crazy ways. And, and anyway, mm-hmm. so, so Zelensky in 2018 um, uh, declares himself to be a candidate for uh, the 2019 Ukrainian presidential elections. And he's running up against Petro Poroshenko, who is the incumbent, who is the candidate who um, is uh, elected after the chaos of 2014 and and the the first Russian invasion and the annexation of Crimea and the beginning of the war in the Donbass. And um, 
Poroshenko is more of a Ukrainian nationalist who uh, you know takes a hard line or harder line against the the Russians, um, and uh, you know for understandable reasons I think, especially in the context of 2014, 2015, and the early days of this war. Um, but Zelensky is is crucial to 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 understand that he's not only an anti-corruption candidate in the way that he is on the TV show, or at least that's how he frames himself. And it makes all these promises about, about uh, breaking the hold of the oligarchs and of kind of restoring uh, good common sense, Ukrainian, um, you know, uh, <laughs> sort of populism yeah. and, and sweeping out, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the relics of this post-Soviet uh, hangover, but he's also a peace candidate in the sense that he, he, you know, he speaks Russian. The show is in Russian. Um, right. You know, Ukrainian right, right. only pops up occasionally. Um, and that, uh, you know, he, he so he is, he's a figure in the broader Rus- Russophone world. And so he's seen as, as someone who could kind of broker some kind of, of peace with the Russians and, and kind of deal finally with the uh, occupation in the East. Um, and so on all these different, you know, axes, he is swept into office with like 73% of the vote. He is mm-hmm. um, unheard of, right? He's, he's massively popular. Um, and this is followed up by elections that he calls uh, a few months later. So he's, he's elected in, in April 2019. He comes in in May. And then July 2019, he holds parliamentary elections. And his party, which is called Servant of the People, named after his TV show, <laughs> and whose symbol was uh, uh, essentially his uh, character on a bicycle, like r- with a mace. So it's kind of like like a horse <laughs> rearing up, right? You know that they are they are the manifestation of this of the TV show. That they are they also are swept into office. Uh, like hundreds, I think, so, like over two hundred thirty nine of the the delegates to the Verkhovna Rada, that is the the legislature. Um, the first time uh, after independence that there was a one a single party majority uh, in 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 parliament where they didn't have to depend on this complicated coalition. Um, and so there is this real mandate for change that has been, you know, between the presidency and and the parliamentary majority that has been uh, voted into office. And, you know, you get this real sense reading the news um, items from 2019 that. The Ukrainian people voted in Zelensky's character and and uh, that Zelensky was going to be himself and his character by you know standing up to the corruption and standing up to the oligarchs and as and dealing with the intractable problem of the Russian occupation or the you know the, the frozen conflict in the east. And you know, me and Steve were talking about this before off mic, but you know, like you think it's like part of the reason that he had such low approval readings before the war was because he ran as anti-corruption, but like being against something is very different than like having like an agenda. And I think you mentioned they had to have a parliamentary election, but that's because they literally had no seats in parliamentary when he, that party didn't have any seats. Right? Yeah. Like I mean, it was, it was like, I don't, yeah. Like that was the thing that struck me about the first season was that I'm not sure what what the party servant of the people was defining itself like are we scandinavian style social democrats are we macron style you know neoliberal technocrats are we pragmatic german center-right merkelists are we grifter buffoons like boris johnson like who are we (laughs) you know like i didn't like it was one thing to 
Yeah, to be like, we're against the oligarchs, but it's like, okay, so like, what is your agenda? And I think that's part of the, like the, he was still a history teacher more than a politician because a history teacher, as I know, (laughs) right? (laughs) We don't have to make the difficult decisions that real governing has to make. And I'm not so sure that Zelensky exactly grappled with that. Well, so, yeah, so I think that's that's something that, I mean, by 2020 is already um, for Zelensky. Uh, it's, it's, the wheels start to come off, I mean, of his bicycle. Yeah. Um, and and, and the, his party doesn't do so well in, in like local elections. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and the problem of, of corruption proves to be much more difficult. Um, uh, and, and on top of that, he also becomes implicated in corruption, uh, mm-hmm. with the, the release of the Panama papers, yeah. for example, yeah. that he, he's yeah. named in, in, you know, offshoring his production company, uh, I think in his wife's name. And, and he, he also has, I mean, speaking of oligarchs, he has this kind of cloudy relationship, uh, with, uh, Ihor, uh, Kolomoisky, yeah. who is, uh, you know, a Ukrainian, oligarch essentially he's a billionaire we ran that tv show which is one of the thing or we ran right. that tv uh channel because i kept wondering right. as i was watching this who let this guy on ukrainian television to do all this but it was like <laughs> his own oligarch yeah he's got so he, he had, yeah he's had the support of uh kolomoisky and you know he which he re, you know he publicly renounced after he's elected but there's some doubt about that i mean that's that's you know that's up for debate and and and, it, and we're I mean, at this point, who knows what we're going to ever really find out about those details. Um, but so by 2020 and especially into 2021, corruption hasn't gone away. I mean, he has made steps. He's, he's trying to, you know, there have been some laws, um, but, the, you know, it's still a thing. Uh, uh, one of his big things, like in the TV show, was to improve the Ukrainian road network, which that 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 happens in part. But. The Russian well, it's a problem. good thing he didn't get that done so that the tanks will break <laughs> down. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, as it turns out. What um, a brilliant move. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a four-dimensional <laughs> chess. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and so, and, and, and trying to like find peace with the Russians that also proves to be much more difficult because he starts to lose popularity in part because he is, ta- he, he has a kind of, he's seen as being soft with Putin um, and and uh, uh, and uh, he takes a kind of nationalist sort of turn, a harder turn against the Russian uh, situation. I think in 2020, early 2021, um, because uh, it's starting to, his peace candidate status is turning into a liability, and and you have the sense that Zelensky is kind of adrift uh, going into 2020, 2021. and yeah. So um, you know, there's there's a, a an editorial in the New York Times. By one of the uh, um, you know the main uh, journalists of the uh, Kiev Independent, Olya Rudenko, who is the chief editor of this newspaper, who's who says um, this is February 21, 2022. I mean, it's it's eerie. The comedian turned president is seriously in over his head. That by that time he's the wrong guy for the moment. That's the real feeling. Is yes. that if there was an election in before the war, he probably would not have been elected again as president. His party would have been kicked out, right? He's he, he is underwater in the polls. And this, I think, based on some things that I had read back in February and March, that 
this public opinion polling that allegedly the 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 Russian security service the FSB had done uh, was that many Ukrainians were doubtful about Zelensky or kind of back to feeling doubtful about the the uh, the probity and 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 solidity of their own government and i think this helped create this sense and or encourage a sense in putin's mind that like this is the time to move because you, yeah. you know the ukrainian state is, is shaky well the invasion happens and zelensky it turns out is the perfect man for the moment as a television figure who yeah. who, who, who can command not only the ukrainian media but the global media in a way that I mean, in my lifetime, I don't think I've ever seen any kind of uh, a state leader it, you know, rise to the occasion in quite the same way that Zelensky does. Um, yeah, and there was one thing that John Stewart, I, I listened to a uh, uh, to a thing where uh, it was uh, John Stewart was talking about Zelensky. And he said, you know, it does not I'm paraphrasing, but he mm -hmm. said, you know, it does not surprise me that a guy forged in stand up comedy was able he's like he's like look you know putin putin might be bombing us but have you ever done open night mic and the bomb is <laughs> like that's bombing you know and it was like but that ability to be able to um react like in the you know, almost reacting to an audience in the moment and mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. understanding like what was required of you in the moment like that first video that he put out from mm -hmm. the square Right. You know, what's surrounded by his ministers in which right. he said, we are not leaving. Yeah. Like is it's very hard to picture Merkel, <laughs> you know, you know, doing, uh, you know, doing, uh, doing something like that. And the, the other, the, the pre-war figure that Zelensky reminds me most of is, uh, is I think second term Obama. And I bring that up because servant mm -hmm. of the people is semi-obsessed with Obama. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, that was also during like the second, I mean, I think that started getting filmed and I mean, yeah. I'm wrong, like in kind of towards the twilight of the Obama president. Right. Because, oh, yeah. you know, Obama mm -hmm. was like, because Obama's whole thing was the grand bargain. Mm -hmm. He was the peace candidate and he didn't actually understand that the Republicans were didn't were just trying to destroy him. Like there was no peace to be had. Right. Right. And so I think in many ways, Obama miscalculated that moment. And I kind of feel like that was a little bit of what Zelensky was was gripping with was was had missed the mark on was that running as the peace candidate as the unity candidate when the other when like misunderstanding to no, know the other side the russians are actually coming to destroy you because your very existence as president is an existential threat to their identity and i feel like that's why like every time like he trots out an obama impersonator during the fifth episode and they're con he's constantly obsessed with obama and i'm like right. you guys are kind of the same dude who made yeah. who forged the same identity and also made kind of the same miscalculation up front yeah, I think that's interesting to think about. I mean, and, and you're right. It, it's um, it is a show that I think it starts in 2015, right? So it's yeah. in the yeah, it's in the kind of tail end of the Obama administration, and um, um, I think there's something to this. Um, I, I mean, Zelensky wasn't a lame duck, right? I mean, he didn't wasn't around long enough to to be in that position, but um, you know, he's a. It becomes clearer, at least to people in Ukraine, it seems that he's not. It's one thing to play the president on TV. Uh, it's another thing to be the president and especially to not have come up in the 
real grimy, filthy world of politics and, and all the connections that come with that, that actually, uh, you know, uh, the, the kinds of bargains that politicians make to, to make things happen. And he kind of, you know, yeah, like I said, uh, starts to flounder and seems to be adrift. Um, uh, you know, regarding with Putin, though, um, who also is mentioned, you know, a lot on the show. Oh, um, oh yeah. You know, it's, it's funny, like the way he gets people to shut up, right, as he says, like, Putin has been deposed, you know, and then that's the one thing that will get everyone to listen to him. Right. Right. Um, um, it, it, it is interesting in the show, though, that it is an alternate reality. Right. There is. I, I don't rem remember any kind of discussion of uh the you know the Donbass or uh, of of Russia as uh, or Crimea or anything like that maybe I missed it but I don't remember mm. um, it, it's a it exists in a world where this hasn't happened yet or might never happen um, but in any case you know when when Zelensky takes this kind of nationalist sort of turn and hardens against the Russians in 2020 uh, ish I think that's when um, the 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 Putin begins is like less sees him starts to seem more as a, as a, as a threat uh, maybe not at first right at first he's kind of I want to say popular with the Russians but like it, it seems like he could maybe be someone they can do business with and they will uphold the 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 ceasefire agreements of Minsk one Minsk two and the so-called Normandy format that had been agreed to by the Russians the Ukrainians and the uh, the Europeans under the OSCE. But this is not that popular in Ukraine, especially not in, in, in kind of central and western Ukraine. Um, and, and so Zelensky moves towards that and away from, you know, kind of accommodating the Russians. And I think that's when he becomes more and more, um, you know, a, a target for, for, uh, for Putin. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned John Stewart, Steve. I, I, I hear people compare Zelensky to John Stewart, but then I think, you know, John Stewart had this great political movement and his whole thing was like well we just we just need to talk to the tea party to restore sanity right which i thought was uh i think was a pretty big miscalculation but i mean certainly you know i, I think Zelensky. um yeah i mean i you're talking about like how you know stand-up comedian i think there's something to that uh we were talking before about how he kind of elicits this kind of dramatic moment about having the EU president come to Ukraine with paperwork. And there's something about like the, the, the brevity of that statement with the dramatic overture of it that I think captures the imagination of people to the point where I think, didn't the European Union president do that? Didn't he fly to Ukraine with paperwork for him to sign during this? Oh, oh during the war? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Like in, I think in in like April or something. Yeah, when when things had yeah. calmed, when when, yeah. when Kiev was no longer surrounded. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was such a. I mean, the, I think that points up to like his gift as a comedian, right? Because yeah. in a very very dark way, that's a laugh line, right? Like consider <laughs> Ukrainian resistance, our application for the EU, bring me the paperwork, mm -hmm. you know, and sure they enough. Did. They, they, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. as thinking about, I don't know. I mean, it really is striking. I mean, I, I can't. There's something about the moment that we're in, where this figure of Zelensky, uh, uh, as as a wartime leader, is is really profound. I think because, um, you know, there's there's a scene in the show where it's in like the later part of the first season where um, I think where he starts really to, to get his first taste of like, 
you know, um, people being angry with him. And he, this is where he imagines Louis the 16th uh, talking to him about, you know, how the, the peasant, you know, run away, flee, because you're just going to, you know, look what happened to me. I lost my head. And that's the only way that you can deal with these people is to basically run away. But in the Ukrainian context, that's really, that strikes a nerve, I think, because what happens in 2013 and 2014 with the Euromaidan, and, or sometimes called the Revolution of Dignity, is that the, the president in power at the time uh, Viktor Yanukovych does flee uh, in the middle of this, and he he flees essentially to Russia eventually, and and uh, kind of reveals himself or it, it is able to peg himself as, you know, an agent of Russia in a certain way, and and so in the moment of crisis, you know, the guy who who not only is the target of popular ire, but um, uh, uh, is the one who's supposed to be holding the country together, runs away, and for Zelensky, I think I remember thinking about this early in the days of this most recent phase of the war in 2022 is that the fact that he makes such a big deal out of staying and he's like you know casually walking through swaggering through in a way through through Maidan Square with his ministers you know in his in his khaki t-shirt as just one of the guys right is uh i think really the moment that that showed him to be um is speaking to, I, I guess you could call it, I would be willing to bet a certain kind of phobia on the part of Ukrainians that like, this is a guy who, you know, is being targeted by the Russians, presumably, who it, it seemed it seemed clear at the time anyway, that if they were able to lay his hands, uh, their hands on him, that they would either kill him or at least extradite him and, and put him on some kind of trial as a, you know, as a fascist or whatever, and, and install a puppet government. And in the face of all that, he isn't running away. Right. And and he he's he becomes the not only the media face of Ukraine, but becomes a kind of president of Ukraine. And I would dare say of anywhere in the world at this particular moment, our moment in time, uh, the likes of which we haven't seen. I think it's hard to imagine, for example, I don't know, Biden <laughs> having this kind of um, composure um, or anybody really. Um, in, in, in these circumstances. And, and this is where, yeah, his training as, as an actor, as a comedian, um, he, he had done kind of social media type stunts in his early part of his presidency uh, uh, doing, um, I, I, can, I can read to you here some examples from this uh, interview or not, not interview, but like uh, Franklin Four in the Atlantic did an article on him in, in December, 2019 of how he, um, Zelensky that is, like had a 14 hour press conference in, in uh, October, 2019. Um, you know, he had, a, he streamed on Facebook, uh, members of his political party to, to take lie detector tests when they were accused of corruption um, uh, to pick his press secretary. Yeah, there was an open competition for the job, like on the TV show, where there were 4,000 candidates uh, tested for their sense of humor and tolerance for stress. I mean, so, you know, there are these things which during the peacetime or quasi peacetime version of his presidency that maybe didn't work out. Uh, it seemed like in February and in March was exactly the thing that uh, that maybe a different kind of president. You know, you can picture a kind of doughy, generic, um, old style uh, Ukrainian president before Zelensky. It's hard to imagine him having the the the, the screen presence and the and the global um, just the uh, being that kind of figure. Um, yeah, Zelensky was the right man for the moment. It turns out. Yeah, and it turns you know I feel like he represents a kind of modern Ukraine that is looking west. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, whereas, you know, one of the central conflicts in Russian identity, I think, you know, going back to Peter the Great right. and Catherine right. the Great, mm-hmm. right, is like, are we our own unique thing? Right. We are a Eurasian unique thing, Russia, or are we just the Eastern Front of Europe? Right. And Zelensky has made extremely clear that Ukraine is Europe. Mm-hmm. Come help us. Mm-hmm. We want to be in the, send us the paperwork. Right. <laughs> this, yeah. You know, this is Europe. And I think that this is where, you know, the shortcomings of his framing as a history, you know, in the show as a history teacher and not a politician. Um, you know, we've talked about that, but he also seems to have had a very profound understanding of the forging of the Ukrainian identity in a way that he seemed to understand that resistance was what was called for in the moment. And damn it, he was going to stand there. And, you know, and that, you know, in memory as recent as 2013, like you talked about, like it was, you know, (laughs) their president actually did the flight to Beren. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, it's like, if Louis the 16th had actually escaped and ended up in Austria, you know, with Marie Antoinette's family, like that's kind of what happened. And he understood this moment profoundly. And so that's why I love this show is that it, it presents a kind of future vision of what Ukraine can be that had its shortcomings before the war, but it also, I think helps explains what, you know, who he is now and why he did what he did and what he stands for. And And in that way, the show, I think, is a fascinating document that I just can't think of another analogy for anywhere in our in our culture. No, I I will say, though, I I started looking into what happens in later seasons of the show. Yeah. And I'm not sure that the prophecy there is as helpful. (laughs) Um, uh, Well, we'll we'll be back to to spoil anything, but it does not go well for him. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I think, you know, because I, I think the one takeaway I had, uh, you know, I, I referenced an Atlantic article, but, you know, Zelensky, like, was confronted with this question about whether Ukraine was hopelessly corrupt. He's like, well, I agree with the second part, but mm-hmm. I do not agree with the first part. And I think right. that there's such a hopefulness to his demeanor and persona. And even though he's like kind of a, he's not like, I mean, to a certain extent, he's not like Benini, where he's not like very like verbose or very like animated and more like Buster Keaton straight face, but certainly that hopefulness and that optimism, I think makes him kind of a compelling, not only a compelling comedic presence, but also a compelling uh, leader in this wartime. Um, yeah. 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 As it turns out, I mean, you know, like I said, though, up until the invasion, that had run its course, it seemed. And, and, and yeah. that, um, he, you know, the, the feeling was he'd kind of, that experiment had failed, it seemed. But along comes the war and it does everything that uh, Putin didn't want to happen. Right. This is the one thing we didn't <laughs> want to happen, which, right. which was solidifying Ukraine identity, uh, essentially giving NATO another 30 years of uh, a lease on life. Um, uh, absolutely driving, you know, Ukraine into into the arms of the EU in a very definitive way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. And I do hope uh, maybe we get that we get a peek of that season too. Maybe we can have you come back or talk about any other things. Cause this, sure. has, been, this has been amazing. Well, well, thanks. Yeah. I, I, I uh, you know, in part of my teaching is I do use film um, in some of oh. my courses and um, uh, I thought a lot about Eastern European cinema. Um, so 
uh, I'd be happy to talk talk film with you. Steve, you've done that a little bit, haven't you? Use film to uh, teach your students? Uh, yeah. So, uh, so Andrew, <laughs> I don't know if uh, you knew. So I, I used to teach at a, at a college preparatory high school, and um, it was uh, a lot. Uh, my urtext, if you will, is Heart of Darkness. We would mm-hmm. you know, read Heart of Darkness also, and then follow it with the Chebe's dramatic takedown of Heart of Darkness, right? Uh, and trying yeah. to explore it in all its complexity. But um part of what we learned about was Joseph Conrad's dramatic transformation from Joseph Conrad. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, as being part of the uh, kind of the Polish areas of Western Ukraine, it's complicated, right. but his father being a political, you know, dissident of the Russians and him ending up in the East. And so, uh, or excuse me, in the West, which is mm-hmm. how he transformed himself into Joseph Conrad, who spoke right. four languages, you know, right, four right. languages. Um, but yeah, the Ill- using, you know, using film and literature to help illustrate like these, you know, this human dimension of the history is something that I think is becoming more and more indispensable and that universities um, need to invest in as they think about their humanities and history department budgets going <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Forward. Good pitch. It's not all STEM education, folks. Yeah. Well, no, and, and I'll say this: it isn't at S and T either, where I teach, yeah. and and, um, and yeah. students are really they're they're into it. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah. So, as a as a student of film or a student of television, I mean, what what is ultimately your hope if people watch the first season? Their takeaway should be like if there's an overreaching, overarching thought they should consider well i i think as hard as it is to do i I think it would be to try to see that as a document of not not zelensky as he is now not of ukraine as it is now in the war but of what what this vision of it what it was and what it could be as of the mid-2010s and and in this this complicated fragile period after the euromaidan trying to figure out what that means for the future um I, i i think i would i would you know the, the the flashier parts of the show, thinking about the the political um, theater of it, but I would pay attention to the how everyday life is for folks and and how how his family lives in their apartment, um, how uh, you know the the fact that like he had to borrow money to pay for a, a, a microwave, right? And he's very oh, concerned yeah. about that in the first issue, uh, first issue, first episode. Um, you know, I I think it, it trying to 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 tease out from the show what everyday life was like according to the show in ukraine and how that factors into the way that people imagine their political horizons hmm. and i think that um it, or the opening credits right you see all these different shots of like rust belt kiev but also kind of monumental kiev um and possibly to think about how the show doesn't talk about the countryside very much right and, and, right. The, mm. and the vast open spaces of, of, of ukraine it's a very as far as I've seen, a very Kiev oriented show, um, yeah. which is that's one particular perspective. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, everyday life. I mean, I think that's that's I, I, I like teaching with film um, because like, you know, whether they mean to or not, because they're they're shot at the particular times that they are. And, and they're like they they kind of like soak up everyday life in ways that are not always intended and sometimes sort of um, inevitable and teasing that out, I think is what makes them so useful as historical, uh, documents. Yeah. Doctor, thank you. This is, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Andrew. This was fun. Yeah. It was fun. 
Steve, I love nothing more than to hear you talk about this stuff that you love. I just I could do it. I could literally do this for two hours, but we wow. all we've kept him hostage long enough. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. It's, it's fun. Thank you. And I just want to thank you all for listening. This is our first episode of this. Uh, we're hoping to get this on all the major uh, podcast platforms. So be sure to subscribe. Be sure to write a review. Uh, that helps us get up there in those counts and get in front of people. So we hope that you will help us uh, help us uh, promote this uh, promote this podcast as we continue. And we will hopefully get some schedule and some rhythm to that. And so be, on behalf of Film Snobs, uh, on behalf of our guests, I want to thank you all. And as I think I sit here and, and Steve, I know we got some probably jury people listening. I think about this being the uh, eighth anniversary of losing our buddy, Josh. Yeah. Uh, I just want to say, as a parting thought, take care of yourselves and each other. Have a good week. 